Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I just remember <laughs> thinking after about the fifth hour that there's no way the pain could get any worse. But um, <laughs> yes, it did get worse after <laughs> After that, then eventually you lose all will to live and you're stuck in the middle of the wilderness. But horseback riding is is a lot of fun. You should definitely try to do this. It's great. It really is great. This is the Dear Bob and Sue podcast, stories from our journey to all the U.S. national parks and other public lands. I'm Karen Smith. And I'm Matt Smith. We're the authors of the Dear Bob and Sue series of books. Today we're talking about some unique and unusual things to do throughout the national parks. Did you know that there are parks where you can ride a horse, a snowmobile, a train, a dog sled, a raft, and even a chairlift? And also parks where you can take in a bat show, a firefly show, pick fruit, hike to a backcountry lodge, and get a massage. Not all in the same day, of course. <laughs> Thanks for joining us for this episode as we explore some wonderful adventures that you can experience as you visit the parks. You know, we've talked a lot about things to do in the national parks, especially hiking. We talk a lot about hiking, but you know, there are other things to do in the parks other than hiking. Yeah, some really unique things, actually somewhat surprising things, I'd say. Yeah, so we're going to talk about those in this episode. Karen, where do you want to start? How about we go to the great state of West Virginia, almost heaven, and to the newest national park, New River Gorge National Park. Yeah, that was an unusual activity. So for all of you who want to walk on a catwalk underneath the longest single-span steel arch bridge and the third highest bridge in the country, do we have a treat for you? We do. (laughs) You can walk beneath the New River Gorge Bridge. It's only 876 feet above the river. And they have an interesting two-foot-wide catwalk underneath the bridge. That you can walk along. The whole span of the bridge, which runs for more than 3,000 feet. So this is through a tour. It's called the Bridge Walk Tour, <laughs> appropriately. And they take you on this walk across the catwalk. And then when you get to the other side, there is a shuttle waiting and they take you back to the office. And we did this, what, two years ago with Bob and Sue. And it was It was remarkable. It was actually way cooler than we thought it would be. Yeah, you don't just climb underneath the bridge with nobody looking and walk across a (laughs) two-foot catwalk. They strap you to a safety line. Thank goodness. Yeah, a lot of people were critical of our social posts, seeing (laughs) our safety lines. You know, people saying, oh, I would have done it without a safety line. That's not an option. Uh, no. <laughs> they, they control the the entrance and exit to this uh, catwalk, and so you can only go on a tour. That's right. It, the gate is locked. You go on a tour. I don't know. There were probably, what, maybe 12 of us on the tour. I'm not sure what the, what the limit is. We had a great guide, and he had all kinds of stories to tell us. So the whole tour lasts for, they say, two to three hours, and that sounds about right. They don't just march you across the catwalk. You know, you go a little ways, and then he stops you and tells a story you can sit down on the catwalk and dangle your legs over the river yeah and even though you're with a group uh it seemed like there was plenty of space between us we could walk back and forth it wasn't as crowded as it sounds uh and of course you're you're attached to a safety line so if anything were to happen which it wouldn't i mean there's guardrails handrails handrails yeah yeah yeah. so you're not gonna fall off no. <laughs> but but if, if you do, they'll fish you back up. <laughs> a 
Oh, I don't know if they will. <laughs> I didn't see any 876 foot lengths of rope waiting. <laughs> uh, but it was really fun. And I do not like exposed places with, with potentially steep drop-offs, but this actually didn't bother me. One of the things that was a little eerie was that you're 25 feet under this bridge, which is a major highway. And so there are a lot of really big like semi trucks that go across and the vibration right over your head (laughs) can be pretty loud. Yeah, but it it is interesting to see how the bridge was constructed, designed and constructed because you're seeing all the intricate workings of how they put this thing together. It's, It's really an amazing thing. So that is one of the unusual things you can do in the national park other than hiking. That's right. And I will say the views from up there are spectacular in both directions. You know, you're looking, uh, what is it, south and north on the river. Just incredible views. So do not miss this. Now, it does sell out. So you want to buy your tickets ahead of time. The website is just called bridgewalk.com. You can get on, select your time, your day and your time and so forth. But definitely reserve your tickets ahead of time. And you can do it when it's raining because you're undercover. Right. There's a roadway (laughs) above your head. That's right. And I just wanted to give a shout out to one of our longtime listeners, Brent, who sent us this info about New River Gorge Bridge a couple of years ago, right after it became a national park. And he did it. He recommended it to us. And that's the first time we'd ever heard of it. And a really great experience. Okay, let's move on. What's our next topic of unusual things to do in the national parks, Karen? Let's talk about horseback riding in the national parks. There are actually quite a few parks that allow horseback riding. Yeah, some of the parks that have horseback riding are Grand Canyon, Glacier, Yellowstone, Rocky Mountain, Yosemite, Bryce Canyon, Zion, and the Great Smoky Mountains. Right, and those all offer horse tours. So we're going to assume that most of you are not bringing your horse (laughs) to the national parks, and so you need to join a tour. Um, So a lot of these have tours that you can join, whether it be for a little two-hour horseback ride or an all-day horseback ride. And, you know, some of them even have multi-day horseback trips, which is what we did. Now, we weren't technically in North Cascades National Park, but we were right next to it in the Pesaten Wilderness. Right, yeah, just east of North Cascades National Park, and we were out for a few days, um, many hours each day on horseback. The first <laughs> first day was uh, at least eight hours By the time we got to the eighth hour, pretty much everyone was willing to just walk the rest of the way and let the horses go. Um, So you you do have to, if you're not a horse person or you're not uh, riding horses often, uh, that's a long first day on the back of a horse. Absolutely. We would not recommend, if you are brand new to horseback riding, signing up for an eight-hour horseback ride because let me just tell you from experience, you might not be able to walk the next day. So if you're going to do something like that, take a couple of practice rides, maybe work out with a thigh master. I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) I I don't know how you prepare. Don't want to speculate how you you would prepare for that. I just remember thinking after about the fifth hour that there's no way the pain could get any worse. But um, yes, it did get worse after after that. Then eventually you lose all will to live and you're stuck in the middle of the wilderness. But horseback riding is is a lot of fun. You should definitely try to do this. It's great. It really is great. It's a fun experience. And it's really great for kids too. Now, just one note though. If you are going to, let's say, Grand Canyon on your summer vacation and you think you're going to, you know, you're going to want to do a little horseback riding tour, you do need to bring some proper clothes. You don't want to show up in shorts and some little flat tennis shoes. Yeah, the one thing that we learned very quickly, we did our trip in the summertime and it was uh, dry out and it creates a lot of dust. Mm. So you want, <laughs> you want to have comfortable pants, long pants, probably not shorts, uh, a shirt. Uh, I would suggest a, a long sleeve shirt. You want to pretty much cover up anything that you don't want covered in dust. Uh, wearing a bandana around your nose and mouth might be a good idea. And you also want good, sturdy boots. A lot of people wear cowboy boots with a heel that is typically one to two inches tall so that 
you can get a good grip on the stirrups and your feet don't slide out? Well, exactly. We didn't know this until we actually went on the horse pack trip because we don't really know anything about horses. But if you were to take a fall, your foot would be a lot less likely to get caught in the stirrup where you're going to be then dragged along by the horse if you're wearing a cowboy boot that has a smooth leather sole. So look, you don't need to buy cowboy boots just to go on a horseback ride, but it might be best to check with the horseback outfitter ahead of your trip and see what you should bring. Yeah, so uh, don't worry about the dust or being dragged by your horse (laughs) when your foot gets caught in the stirrup or um, the severe pain that you, you will experience just moments into the ride. All you are really selling it. You are selling it, Matt. Horseback riding in the national park is really a lot of fun. It is. So do not miss that. Okay. Karen, let's move on to right. our next topic, which is which is what? So this is something that's in my bucket. I've wanted to do this. We have never done it. We need to get on it and sign up. It's, it's a lottery. Um, and that would be the synchronized firefly show. And let's talk about the one in Great Smoky Mountains National Park first. Okay, let's talk about it. Can we just skip to the part where you tell us how do they synchronize the fireflies? Okay, I will tell you that, Matt. So Synchronous fireflies are a are a species. A, a, <laughs> I can't a say species. too many s's. They are a <laughs> Synchronous fireflies are one of nineteen species of fireflies that live in the Great Smoky Mountains, and they're one of only a couple of species in North America who synchronize their flashing light patterns as part of a mating ritual. So the flash pattern is a series of five to eight flashes followed by a pause of about eight seconds, and then this pattern is repeated. And as more males start joining in, the flashing begins to synchronize, and soon entire sections of the forest will be pulsating with light at the same time. How cool would that be to see? Didn't even know this was a thing. (laughs) (laughs) So you're actually learning something today. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So it turns into a mating frenzy. That's right. Yeah. Mating season of these fireflies only lasts for about two to three weeks each year. And since 1993, when these dates were first recorded, the peak date occurs at various times from the third week in May to the third week in June. And if you want to see these synchronized fireflies at Great Smoky Mountains, you will need to get a parking pass to join this event. And that is done by lottery. So you can't just find these randomly. I mean, you have to you have to have a permit to go see bugs. Well, in Great Smoky Mountains, you do, Matt. (laughs) They have to control the crowds. Okay. Um, And so here's how it works. In late April, and this is all on the park website, in late April, they'll announce the viewing dates and they'll open the lottery for the vehicle passes. In early May, the lottery closes. In mid-May, the applicants are notified if they won. And in June, the event will happen. The specific dates, again, will be announced. Last year, the cost was $24, and that's per vehicle. And that helps cover the cost of viewing supplies and the nightly uh, personnel who manage this viewing event. What are the viewing supplies, Carrie? <laughs> <laughs> You know, Matt, I didn't dig quite <laughs> that did. deep. No. I'm just wondering what viewing supplies you get for 24 bucks, but I guess you would find out if you apply and win the lottery. What a lot of people might not know is that this event also happens at Congaree National Park in South Carolina. Well, I was just wondering if this happens anywhere else. Well, Matt, synchronous fireflies are very rare in the United States. There are a few other public lands where you might see them, like Allegheny National Forest in Pennsylvania and Rocky Ford State Park in Tennessee. Now, in Congaree National Park, the event is a little bit earlier than in Great Smoky Mountains. In 2023, their viewing event took place in mid-May. And again, you need a vehicle reservation to attend the event. And again, it's a lottery hosted on recreation.gov. Now, in Congaree, they have 130 vehicle passes available for each evening of the event. Again, this is all on their website. The lottery will open up sometime in April, so check for the dates so you don't miss that. Also, the cost in 2023 was $24 per vehicle. 
So recreation.gov is in the firefly viewing business. Is that right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, they're in a they're in a lot of businesses <laughs> when it comes to the national park events. But Matt, there are some rules that people need to follow. And one of the the biggest ones is you can't use your cell phone at all. You can't use it as a flashlight, and you also cannot take any photos or videos. You can't interrupt the mating frenzy. Exactly. Right. The exactly. synchronicity of this whole thing. Right. They don't want to throw that off. Yeah. What about catching them and putting them in jars? <laughs> like we did when we were kids. Can you catch them? <laughs> I think that's frowned upon, Matt. <laughs> Is it? Yes, just like the rules in all the national parks, you cannot take anything out with you, including uh, synchronous fireflies. What if a few attacks themselves to your shirt and you like walk out of the park with them? Well, that's probably a different deal. But I mean, can you imagine seeing that all lit up at the same time? That would be magical and kind of a once in a lifetime deal, I would guess. Yeah. Okay, so let's keep it moving. What's our next topic, Karen? Okay, who would not want to experience the magic of a snowy national park in the winter? No one wouldn't want to do that as for a double negative there. (laughs) And one of the great ways to do it is on a snowmobile. And one of the absolute best places to take a snowmobile tour is Yellowstone National Park. Yeah, Yellowstone probably has one of the most consistent snow levels of all the parks. Most of the roads in the park are closed in the winter. Then a few of them, they groom for snowmobile tracks. It's really surprising how different these roads look in the winter as compared to in the other seasons when you're driving them in a car. So in the winter, all of the entrances and roads are closed to vehicles except for the north and northeast entrances. And that road that runs from the north entrance at Gardner through the park up to Cook City, Montana. So there are a lot of authorized snowmobile concessionaires. You can find them on the Yellowstone Park website. And it's very important to go through these concessionaires um, instead of like, you know, Bob's snowmobile tour in, in you know, whatever. <laughs> sorry if there actually is a Bob's yeah, Bob, snowmobile. Sorry, Bob. Man. <laughs> Bob's having a bad day. Bob's going to be seven emailing us. Are going to not use Bob's. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, Karen, there are two two lodges in the park open during the winter. The Mammoth Hot Springs Hotel up up in the north is open, and then also at Old Faithful, the snow lodge is open, even though you can't drive there in your car. The lodge is open. That's right. And so what we did, we've done this twice, and we would highly recommend it. We came in through the north entrance, through Gardner. We stayed at Mammoth Hotel there. And, you know, we took a day to snowshoe and wander around the thermal features at Mammoth. Then we took a snowmobile tour from Mammoth down to the Old Faithful Snow Lodge, had lunch, and then took it all the way back up. That was a full day tour, and it was magical with a capital M. Yeah, it was over 100 miles. Right. We, we've actually done this twice, once just you and I, and then once with, with our kids. And I don't want to oversell this, but we saw, as we are snowmobiling along the road, we saw bison walking towards us down the road. You know, we pulled over and let them pass. We saw a wolf. You see all of the steam coming up from the thermal features. It was snowing. I mean, it was like something out of a dream. Yeah, and the times we did it, it seems like we had all sorts of weather. We had sunny and whiteout conditions all within the same day, sometimes all within like a 20-minute window because you're going through the park. So you really do get a, a mix of experiences. Absolutely. And the thing is, too, these concessionaires offer tours from different starting points. So, you know, we started in the north by Gardner, but there are also tours from West Yellowstone you know, in the West and Jackson in the South. So depending on where you're flying into and what else you want to see, there are different starting points. The other thing to keep in mind is I thought when we signed up with these, I was a little worried that we would be cold and not have the uh, clothes or gear to do it. When we did it, they pretty much gave you everything. They gave you boots, gloves, the kind of overall outfit that they put you in where you zip up. I mean, we were never 
cold at all. Not only do they give you the equipment to keep you warm, but the snowmobile itself has some heaters. The grips on the handles were heated, and then there was little hot air ducts coming out at your feet. We were never cold. No, surprisingly. And I mean, it got cold. It was... Well, it was zero-ish. Right. (laughs) And the other thing, too, just know that you can either drive a snowmobile yourself, or if that doesn't sound like something you want to do for 100 miles, you can ride on the back of your buddies, your partner's snowmobile. So we've gone twice. The first time I drove my own snowmobile, and the second time I went on the back of Matt's snowmobile. And I have to say... The, the time when I was behind Matt on his snowmobile was actually really comfortable, and I could look at the scenery the entire time because I didn't have to worry about driving. Yeah, it takes a little bit of effort. It takes a lot of concentration. Like, this isn't something that you would have an eight-year-old do, or I don't know what the, the minimum age is, but it's got to be in the teens somewhere. Well, in Yellowstone, you have to be 16 years old and have a valid driver's license. They don't just drive themselves. Uh, It takes some concentration. It was a little bit more concentration than I thought. Yes. Um, But you get used to it. It's a little bit like driving a motorcycle. Yeah. Very, very fun. So do not miss that. Check out the park's website for all the details. Now, you know, most national parks do not allow snowmobiling, but another one we're just going to mention quickly, another one that does and offers tours is Voyagers National Park, way, way up north. (laughs) Yeah, I guess they allow it on frozen lake surfaces, and there's certain areas in the park that, that are designated for snowmobiling. The park provides 110 miles of staked and groomed trails for snowmobiling. So that's fantastic. You have, you know, chance to see the park. Also up there, you're going to have a better chance of seeing the northern lights. Absolutely. This is way up in northern Minnesota. That would be a huge bonus. Can you imagine? That'd be fantastic. And so there are a few other parks that allow snowmobiling, like Acadia does. They don't offer tours. So, yeah, check out snowmobiling as a potential activity in the national parks. Right. It's a great way to enjoy the winter. Okay. What's our next unusual activity (laughs) for the national parks, Karen? Well, Matt, you knew I was going to find a way to work in Carlsbad Caverns in New Mexico. And they have an amazing bat flight program. For all of you who have always wanted to see thousands of Brazilian free-tailed bats flying out of a cave all at the same time. Yeah, the bat flight program, we saw this once, and it was definitely worth planning our visit around and, and staying for it. It's not guaranteed, so we should mention that these bats migrate. They show up sometime in March or April, and then they leave sometime in late October. So if you're going in January, you want to see the bat flight program, they're not there. They're probably in Brazil since they're Brazilian free-tailed bats. That's right. Now, this is a free program, and you do not need any advanced reservations. You just literally show up. Now, here's what's different from when we did it a few years ago. So this program includes an evening ranger talk about the bats before the bats fly out, before dusk. But this only happens now, Memorial Day weekend through October. And I remember when we did it, it was mid-May. So here's the thing, though. If you're there before Memorial Day weekend, you can still go and sit in the amphitheater and hopefully watch the bats fly out. There just isn't going to be a ranger there doing the program, which is kind of a shame because that was actually really interesting to hear everything that the ranger had to say. Yeah, and there are actually a few rules when when you do this. You can't use any kind of electronic devices, uh, cameras, laptops, cell phones, any of that stuff. The bats are very sensitive to any kind of light or electronic noises or noises of any kind. And so they don't want to disturb or confuse the bats when they're coming out of the cave. Now, of course, the time that this happens every day is going to change depending on the time of sunset. They usually come out at dusk. So if you're there in June, let's say the start time is going to be a lot later than it will be in early October. So just keep that in mind. You're going to, you know, once you do your tours and stuff, you're going to have to hang around until dusk if you want to see the bat flight program. Yeah, the other thing to mention is the number of bats that come out 
it varies by evening. I mean, there's what, a couple of million bats in the cave, but it's not like every night at a certain time, all million bats fly out at once. Some nights it is a very thick stream of bats and very dramatic. Other nights it's very gradual. Uh, So you do have to have that expectation that it's going to be different every night. Ours was more of a trickle, (laughs) but (laughs) you should still go and see it because I would imagine when they do come out in mass, it would be an incredible thing to see at one of the best, very best national parks in the country. (laughs) Yeah, I thought even the uh, small amount of bats that came out when we were there, I I still thought it was worth seeing. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. What's next, Karen? All right. We are going to touch briefly on something we have done many times, and it is always such a treat, and that is river rafting in the national parks. Yeah, and the two parks that are most known for their rafting are the Grand Canyon, of course, and New River Gorge. Now, there are a lot of other parks where you can partake in river rafting, like Glacier, Gates of the Arctic, Yosemite, Big Bend, and Canyonlands, to name a few. And the great thing about rafting is that there are all kinds of trips available, depending on what you're looking for. Right. The length of time is different. The uh, difficulty is different. So you have anywhere from day trips to multi-day excursions. You can have, as far as boat type, in the Grand Canyon, there are anywhere from the larger motorized rubber rafts that are Fairly easy to get into, fairly easy to get out of, and you don't do anything but sit there, as opposed to smaller rubber rafts. We did the Colorado River through the Grand Canyon in dory boats, which were a ton of fun. Yes, and that is an incredible experience. Uh, You know, the first time we did the five-night camping trip and hiked out at Phantom Ranch, and then we loved it so much we went back and did the 16-day dory trip through the Grand Canyon. And we do have two episodes, two podcast episodes about those trips specifically, if you're interested. But the other thing we've done, too, is when our kids were teenagers and we took them to Yellowstone and Grand Teton, there were just um, like three-hour rafting trips right outside both of those parks. And we did that with our teenagers, and that was great fun. It was safe. It was fairly mild, but they absolutely loved it. Yeah, you can do anything from very mild to very challenging, and those shorter two, three, four-hour trips in rafts are great for families. Right. It's a fun thing for teenagers. You know, I think it's kind of hard to find sometimes things to entertain teenagers, and the rafting trip is gold. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Um, Yeah, so river rafting. Yes. So definitely check out river rafting opportunities in the next park you're going to because you might be surprised if they're not in the park, there might be some right next to the park. Okay, Karen, let's move on. Did you know you can hike to and spend the night in a backcountry chalet or lodge in the national parks? Yes, you can, Matt. And we've actually done a couple of those. So we wanted to talk about first about Glacier National Park. Now they have two backcountry lodges. They have the Sperry Chalet and the Granite Park Chalet. And you hike to both of these, but there are different services offered at these two places. Yeah, those are two very different chalets. The Sperry Chalet, it's it's open roughly from early July, this year, July 8th to September 10th. The rates include meals and bedding. You have to hike up to Sperry Chalet from essentially the Lake McDonald Lodge area. It's a 6.7-mile hike up there. It's a fairly strenuous hike. However, given that they provide meals and bedding, your pack should be a lot lighter than a typical backpacking trip. And it is, we should mention, 3,300 feet of elevation gain. So that is considered a strenuous hike up to Sperry. Now, the other one, this is the one we have done, is the Granite Park Chalet. This is different in that it's considered a hostel for hikers. So you have to bring your own bedding, and you also have to bring your own food, and you cook your meals in the communal kitchen. Yeah, we did that. We actually took a shuttle up to Logan Pass, and then we hiked the Highline Trail Loop for about eight miles to the chalet, Mm -hmm. spent the night, and then hiked back down four miles to the loop, 
And then we picked up a shuttle from there. Right. You know, the High Line Trail is one of the premier hikes in Glacier National Park. So if you, even if you don't have reservations at Granite Park, you can certainly hike there and see it. They do sell some snacks, so you could stop at the picnic table, have your lunch, buy a snack. But I thought it was a great experience. Now, when we were there, the weather was not very good. We had built in an extra day. So we stayed two nights. We built in an extra day to hike all around. And it was foggy and rainy. Remember that? It it was. It wasn't a great day for hiking, although we did go out and hike uh, trying to get over to the lookout where you could see Grinnell Glacier. But it was just too foggy to see anything. It was. There is another option to get up to Granite Park Chalet, and that's from the mini glacier area, which if we ever stay at Granite Park again, I would like to see it from that hike. I guess that's equally gorgeous. One thing to note, both of these chalets have pit toilets, so no bathrooms, but they each have their own website. It explains all the details and also the date when the reservations open up. Yeah, I really enjoyed our stay at the Granite Park Chalet. I did too. We had a nice room with, we went with our friends, John and Lolly. We had a room with, actually there were three sets of bunk beds in there. So we had a little extra room, which was nice since we were all sleeping in the same room. Yeah, but let's talk about a couple of other uh, hike to lodge experiences in the in the national parks. Great Smoky Mountains National Park uh, lets you hike up to the Lacan Lodge. That's right. Now, there are six different trails that will take you up to the lodge. The shortest and the steepest one is the Alum Caves Trail. That's about five miles one way. Now, our first visit to the park, we hiked up that particular trail. We wanted to see the lodge. You know, it's a beautiful hike and a beautiful lodge, and it's still in my bucket to stay there at the lodge. They cook meals, they have bedding, things like that. And the way they accommodate all of these things is they have llamas bring all the stuff up. That's right. The llamas take supplies up and then take supplies back down. So this particular lodge has a capacity of 60 guests per night, and there are seven cabins and three multi-room lodges. Now, one thing to note, there is no electricity. They supply kerosene lamps, and there are no showers available, but... This particular lodge has flush toilets, and apparently they now have an up-to-date privy building, which is so important. <laughs> yeah, that, well, that's that's a nice touch after you've hiked all the way up there. They they also serve family-style meals there in the in the lodge's dining room, breakfast and dinner, and I think they might even provide bag lunches. They do. If you're staying two nights, they also um, supply you with a lunch. Yeah. 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 So check out the LeConte Lodge website for all the details about how to book a stay there. Another lodge you can hike to in the national parks is in Grand Canyon National Park, Phantom Ranch. That's right. Now, instead of hiking up, you are hiking down into the bottom of the canyon. Now, from the South Rim, if you're hiking down on the Bright Angel Trail, it's 10 miles. And if you're hiking down on the South Kaibab Trail, it's seven and a half miles. So shorter, but steeper. And if you're coming down from the North Rim, it's a whopping 13.6 miles down to Phantom Ranch. Yeah, I love Phantom Ranch. Now, the logs there... They provide bedding, there's showers, there's flush toilets, so it's it's pretty nice. It is nice. So there are two different types of um, lodging there. There are dorms. There are two men's dorms and two women's dorms. Now, those are currently unavailable. They also have cabins that can accommodate between two and 10 people, and we have stayed in both. <laughs> we, we, we have. We've actually stayed in a cabin with 10 people. <laughs> <laughs> and that was that was an unusual experience when we were doing the river trip down the Colorado through the Grand Canyon. We the first trip we did ended at Phantom Ranch, and then we spent the night in uh, the cabins. We had a group of sixteen people. Ten of us slept in one cabin, and it was cozy. <laughs> we were all right next to each other. 
<laughs> we were. And so between the s- snoring and the creaky bathroom door that was literally opened every 15 minutes all night long, there wasn't a lot of sleep going on. And the thing I remember too is, so all of these bunk beds, or most of them, there's a row of them that are pushed together very, very closely, like next to each other. And for some reason, Matt, you chose the bottom bunk like you always do. And I chose the top bunk. But then our friends next to us, Phil and Wendy, they switched it. So Phil was on the top bunk and he was literally shoulder to shoulder with me, which is kind of weird. Yeah, I don't don't know how that happened. (laughs) And Wendy was on the bottom, basically sleeping right next to you. I know. Wendy drew the short straw, not not for sleeping next to me, but she, her head was right next to the bathroom door. And you heard all night long, sorry, Wendy, sorry, Wendy, because <laughs> we all had to get up and go to the bathroom in the middle of the night. And, and we apologized to Wendy. I, I don't think she slept all night. I know. I don't think any of us did. But, you know, we all knew each other. And this was at the end of our five-night rafting trip. So we had already gotten very close to Oh, yeah, we already people. slept next to each other <laughs> For the entire week. And then the first time Matt and I went, we had a really nice cabin. Actually, it was for four people, two sets of bunk beds, even though there were only two of us in there. And thank goodness that there were only two of us in the four-person cabin because we had the air conditioner cranked and the temperature on the lower beds was about 20 degrees cooler than the upper beds. Uh, So I think if we would have had another couple in there, that that would have been a very different experience for people in the upper bunks. (laughs) Yes, it would have been a little warm up there. Um, But this is such a unique experience. Now, they have a canteen there where they serve breakfast and dinner. And you basically sit at these long tables with benches and you're sitting with, you know, people from basically all over the world. And it's really fun to swap stories about where people are from and what they're doing. This canteen also sells some snacks. And I believe starting at like four, I think they sell some beers. Um, So this is kind of the hub of Phantom Ranch. If you want breakfast and or dinner, it is available, but it is an extra fee and you have to have reservations for that. You don't just show up and say, yes, I would like dinner. Oh, you mean like you do every night? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that's correct. You can't do that. Now, unfortunately, it's very difficult to stay at Phantom Ranch because, you know, the cabins are so limited and so many people want to do it. There is an online lottery and um, a website, a Phantom Ranch website, where you can get all of the details. All right, Karen, what's our next topic? You know, I think one of the more unique things to do in a national park would be to go dog sledding. That is something we have never done. Well, you know, sometimes it's called mushing. (laughs) Tell us what exactly dog sledding is, Matt, would you? Well, it's essentially you get in a sled and you have a a team of dogs pull you through the wilderness, either uh, a team of Siberian Huskies or Alaskan Malamutes. Uh, they're all tied together in a gang line that's, that runs between them. And, you know, they can go pretty fast. I mean, these dog sled teams can travel up to 20 miles per hour, which might not sound fast, but when you're on a sled, that's real fast. I think that does sound fast. Now, depending on the weather conditions, a team is usually composed of six to 20 dogs. And I think it's interesting that each dog has a specific place in the line and a specific function. And then, of course, there is a leader of the pack that takes their place at the front of the sled. The lead dog. Lead the dog lead knows dog. where to go and, and is setting an example for the other dogs. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> now, the only national park that has a kennel of sled dogs is Denali National Park in Alaska. And their history of sled dogs goes back more than 100 years to 1922. Sled dogs have been a part of this landscape for many more hundreds of years. That was the way that people got around back in the days of yore, right? Almost every family had a few sled dogs that served as transportation, whether they were trapping, trading, or traveling to a neighboring village. So the first superintendent of Denali purchased the park's first seven sled dogs for patrolling the newly established park boundaries. And the park has maintained working dog teams ever since. 
And their job has evolved over time. And while they're no longer patrolling for poachers, they still perform essential work duties. Yeah, and one of the benefits of having sled dogs, using sled dogs to patrol the park is when the temperature drops to 40 below zero, it's really, it's nearly impossible to start a motor, whereas the dogs, they uh, they just need breakfast and they're ready to go. <laughs> That's right. Now, I did not know this until I did the research, but Denali does not offer dog sled tours, okay? So we're just telling you they have a dog sled team, but those are working dogs. You cannot go and take a ride on this dog sled, unfortunately. You can, however, visit the kennel when you're there in the summer. They allow that, so that would be a fun thing to do. And if you want to dog sled in the park, there are local outfitters that will take you dog sledding, just not uh, Denali National Park specifically. Yeah, so if you're up in Alaska, you can do that. But also in the lower 48 in Grand Teton National Park in Wyoming, they do have multiple outfitters that do dog sled tours in the park. That's right. There are half day and full day trips. And there are lots of them. Just Google it if that's something you want to do in Grand Teton National Park. Okay, let's keep it moving. What's our next activity to talk about, Karen? You know, one thing you can do in a national park in the winter is you can actually go downhill skiing. And there are only three national parks in the country that have an operating chairlift. Yeah, I was a little surprised in Olympic National Park, uh, which we can just about see from our house, <laughs> uh, they have a ski and snowboard area up at Hurricane Ridge. And it sits at about 5,000 feet, so it has plenty of elevation. And because it's out there on the Olympic Peninsula and, and the storms come off the ocean, it gets over 400 inches of snow each year. So really good chance if you go up there that the ski and snowboarding conditions will be pretty good. Now, Hurricane Ridge is open to cars on Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays, and some holidays from December through March. They will open the road, they'll open the gate at 9 a.m., but you're going to want to start lining up before 9 a.m. because once the parking lot fills, they close the road. Um, and it is a rule, all vehicles must carry tire chains. Yeah, another thing to keep in mind is, unfortunately, the visitor center up there at Hurricane Ridge burnt down this last summer, um, so there's no place to get food or um get warm or there's no equipment rentals like there used to be. They do have portable bathrooms up there, but if you want lunch, you're going to have to bring it. Um, you're going to have to keep yourself warm. There's there's really no structures to go into. Right. They do have plans to rebuild the visitor center, but who knows how long that will take. Also, this area up there, we have gone up there many times to go snowshoeing. There is tubing up there. So a lot of really fun winter recreation. But there are a couple of other places in the National Park that you can go skiing. In Yosemite, there's Badger Pass Ski Area, and it's open from mid-December through mid-March, depending on the conditions, the elevations, anywhere from seven to 8,000 feet, a vertical drop of 800. So you've you got a fair amount of elevation and vertical drop to do some skiing. They have 10 ski runs. 35% are beginner runs, 50% intermediate, and 15% are advanced. They have five chairlifts, and they do have equipment rentals, so you don't have to bring your own skis. And another national park where you can ski is in Ohio, Karen, <laughs> Cuyahoga Valley National Park. That is a big surprise. Now, apparently, you know, you might think, wait, skiing in Ohio, but because of the lake effect snow from Lake Erie, they can get around 61 inches of annual snowfall. And at these two ski resorts, they have hills and... It's Cuyahoga Valley. They have valleys, Matt. So apparently... <laughs> hills and valleys. Hills and valleys. Yeah, well, you can't really have a valley without hills, can you? <laughs> there are two resorts there, Brandywine Ski Resort and Boston Mills Ski Resort. Those are considered one joint ski complex. I think this place is more beginner friendly and it's good, um, good place to learn to ski. They do also have equipment rental available. Yeah, so that would be a fun thing to do. I mean, it's it's close to a large metropolitan area. That's a, something you could do as a day trip. Yeah, and it's not too challenging. So 
if you're learning, you probably have some positive experiences with the beginner slopes? I would say that's more my speed. We learned how to ski when we moved to Washington State. And, you know, we were 40 years old at the time. And of course, Matt, you took right to um, skiing and snowboarding, but I have struggled pretty much ever since. <laughs> that was fun watching you take the ski lessons with the little kids. Um, <laughs> They would tell you to, when you want to slow down, you you make a pizza or right? you put your ski tips together and form a triangle like a pizza. <laughs> and then when you want to go fast, you you do French fries. You make French fries. <laughs> you make, put your skis parallel and, and yeah, French fries and pizza. Right. And so from that day on, as Matt would be taking the chairlift up to the black diamond slopes and I would be underneath on the green slopes, he would yell down to me, French fries, Karen, French fries, <laughs> or make a pizza. Yeah, more so, French fries than pizza. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So apparently I need to get myself to Cuyahoga Valley National Park and check out those slopes. Okay, Karen, let's keep it moving. What's our next topic? All right, let's talk about where people can see the first sunrise in the United States. And Karen, on our outline, why is there an asterisk next to this topic? <laughs> well, because, you know, a lot of people believe that in Acadia National Park in Maine, at the top of Cadillac Mountain, uh, a lot of people believe that's where you can see the first sight of sunrise in the continental United States. And that is correct. However, that's only some of the time, half the year. That would be roughly from the second week in October through the first week in March. At the top of Cadillac Mountain, it is the first place in the country where the sun appears. But for the rest of the year, Cadillac Sunrise is not the first. The honor goes to Mars Hill, which is a mountain near the Canadian border from late March through mid-September. And that's because in the winter, the sun rises further to the south and the sunrise moves north along the horizon during the warmer months. So I don't mean to burst people's bubble, <laughs> but all the photos I've seen on Instagram in the summer of people, you know, sunrise on Cadillac Mountain, the first sunrise in the, in the U.S., not so much. It was actually the second. <laughs> that's a that's a, that's a lot of explaining exactly what, what still beautiful though yeah still, still beautiful still great but still the people great. at mars hill are saying ah no nah, we saw it a few minutes ago what about puerto rico what about american samoa For american samoa saw the sunrise yesterday okay we're talking about continental united states okay, Matt, so you'll have lower to take those off. <laughs> all right Anyway, if you want to see the sunrise on Cadillac Mountain, you want to check the calendar because the road to the top of Cadillac Mountain isn't open in the winter. The road closes from December 1st through April 14th. And when it is open, you now need a vehicle reservation to go up there. Yeah, so, so make sure you get your reservations for the Cadillac Summit Road May 24th through October 22nd. Those were the dates in 2023. Of course, every year they might be a little bit different and the cost is six bucks. Right. So anyway, that is a very cool thing to do. Watch the sunrise from Cadillac Mountain when you're in Acadia. Whether it's the first sunrise, the second sunrise, that is something to put in your bucket. Okay. Another thing you can literally put in your bucket <laughs> is you can pick fruit in the national parks, Karen. That's right. There are some historic orchards in the parks. Now, the most well-known one would be Capitol Reef National Park in Utah. These orchards are within a mile or two of the visitor center, and they're remnants of the pioneer community of Fruita, who settled there back in the 1880s. And the park has done a great job of preserving these orchards. Um, they're protected as part of the Fruita Rural Historic Landscape, and which is also listed on the National Register of Historic Places. And across these orchards, gosh, there's probably over 20 of them. They have 1,900 trees. And you know what's cool is the park staff maintains the historic character of these orchards, and they use these old techniques like... They use the same flood irrigation ditches that the pioneers dug in the 1880s to water the trees today. So that's very cool, is they have maintained this historic sense of the orchards. 
They have, and you can find out at the Visitor Center which orchards are available for picking at any given date. It's a you-pick deal where you go pick the fruit yourself. There's a little self-pay station there where you can weigh your fruit and, and drop your money in the in the little bucket. And you do want to check with the rangers at the Visitor Center first because... Uh, There's a lot of different types of fruit, and they know exactly when each orchard is ready for picking. Right, and you can only pick in the orchards that they have opened at any given time. And just an approximation, they have apricots that can be picked sometime from late June to mid-July, peaches from late July to early September, pears from early August to early September, and of course the apple crop is usually available mid-August to mid-October. And we should note that if you don't want to pick your own fruit and make your own pies, you can buy pies right there. Yeah, you just go to the the pie house there and get pies, which is what I do. And, And after I eat a whole pie, I'm too sleepy. To pick fruit. (laughs) By the way, (laughs) after my nap, I go buy another pie for later. And by the way, what Matt refers to as the pie house, that would be the Gifford homestead. (laughs) That's right. Just to be clear, (laughs) if you look on a map, it will not say the pie house. (laughs) It'll say Gifford homestead. It's a house that has the pies. (laughs) And also some pretty amazing uh, cinnamon rolls the size of your head, also. (laughs) (laughs) They they do get Get a pie for lunch and a cinnamon roll for dessert or the other way around. (laughs) Right. That's a fun thing to do. And also, it's likely that when you're in these orchards picking fruit, the deer will join you. They were were right next to us uh, as we were picking apples. Yeah, they were getting a little close. We had to take a few of the dropped apples and roll them away to get the deer to to go play somewhere else. (laughs) Now, just two more we wanted to mention very briefly. I did not know about this one, but Great Basin National Park in Nevada has the Lehman Orchard. They have fruit trees, and some of them are over 100 years old. Uh, They are growing just below the lower parking lot at the Lehman Caves Visitor Center. Yeah, I did not know that. We keep learning stuff about Great Basin National Park. Their orchard, they have seven acres of orchards. They also have apricots, pears, peaches, apples, so yeah, and they recently restored some of these orchards as part of a restoration project and and they added irrigation system and even put in some new apricot, apple and peach trees. So yeah, they're keeping the that orchard up. Right. And there weren't a lot of details on the website, so you'll want to ask in the visitor center, but you can pick the fruit from the trees in Lehman Orchard for personal use. Apparently, you cannot go and sell them. Okay, there's another place that you can pick fruit in the national parks in the North Cascades Complex in Washington, actually Stahican, Washington. There is the historic Buckner Orchard that has a ton of apple trees. Yes, over 50 acres of apple trees and 15 buildings representing a time period from the 1880s up to the 1950s. 50s. This is a very cool stop. Even if you're not there in the fall to pick apples, we rode, we rented bikes, we rode back there. It's actually really beautiful back in this. It, it's a big area um, and it's really cool to see. Yeah. And it doesn't get a ton of traffic because Stahican's a little bit difficult to get there. You have to take a little ferry to get to that town. But yeah, back there, they've done a good job of preserving the old buildings and keeping those orchards up. They have more than 350 apple trees. And in the fall, this is usually early October, uh, they have what's called the Harvest Fest, where you can go, you can pick apples, they have a cider press there, you can run your apples through the cider press and make cider. So that is a very fun festival to go to. It's over a weekend and they have a potluck dinner and things like that. But I think you can go other times in the fall and there's a, a you pick section that's open as well. Yeah, potluck dinner. I didn't know about the potluck dinner. I <laughs> I normally don't participate in, in any eating events that require luck. 
<laughs> I'd rather use my luck other places than than the food I eat. But yeah, yeah that's I, great. People are into potlucks. You've never that. been into potlucks because you like to know where your food is made. What? Also, in the health standards, I want certainty, <laughs> not luck, when it comes to my food. You want factory made food. Is I what do you want. want factory. I don't want house made. I want factory made food. <laughs> Lots of stainless steel and. Hair nets and beard nets. <laughs> and inspectors, inspectors and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So, so you will not see us at the <laughs> potluck. However, we might go and press some cider. Yeah. Okay, Karen, we are running out of time. How many unique experiences do we have left? Just two. Two really good ones. Okay. Now, something that's fun for kids of all ages, even big kids like us, is to ride a train. And there are a couple of parks that have trains running right through the heart of them. Now, just to be clear, there are some trains that you can take to get to some of the national parks, like in Grand Canyon, Glacier, and Denali National Parks. That's a really fun mode of transportation. Yeah, that is a great way to travel. But we want to mention two national parks where the train actually runs for quite a distance inside the park. And those two parks would be the Cuyahoga Valley Scenic Railway and the Amtrak Cardinal that runs through New River Gorge National Park. The one in Cuyahoga Valley, the scenic railway there, has a National Park scenic train ride. It's about a two-hour ride that runs on Saturdays and Sundays from January through April. Wait, what happened What happened to the train doesn't run on Mondays and Tuesdays and your life was ruined because you didn't get to ride the train in Cuyahoga and you're still not over it? Yeah, I don't know what happened to that. I'm guessing that they probably changed the schedule around in the summer and fall, and then maybe it runs every day, but Mondays and Tuesdays, or maybe they just completely redid the whole thing. I don't know. But now that you mention it, I, I am still not over it that we didn't get to ride the train. So you're still going to complain about it, even though the train <laughs> changed the days. And well, we yeah, because yeah, okay. I still haven't done it. All right. <laughs> All right. And so the one that runs through New River Gorge National Park, um, the history goes back to the Chesapeake and Ohio Railway. It was completed through the gorge back in 1873 so they could export coal. And now the Amtrak Cardinal runs through the gorge three days a week, Sundays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, two times a day. So the Cardinal makes a lot of stops in the little West Virginia towns that are in side the national park and it also goes through some really scenic areas cruises by the hawks nest dam crosses the trestle at hawks nest state park and it cruises up the new river where it goes right under the new river gorge bridge so i would like to do that you know we talked about it in our halloween episode about ghost towns we talked about thurmond you can take the, this train to thurmond i i remember that mm -hmm. it wasn't yes. that long ago that we <laughs> recorded that episode and you were actually paying attention i was yeah i, I like yeah. that so i like that does this train have sleeping berths where i can take a nap uh you know i don't know man there's nothing better than taking a nap on a train <laughs> You don't necessarily need a sleeping berth to do that. You, no, know, you could just, just nod I off. Sleep anywhere. <laughs> exactly. Okay, Karen. One of the final activities we want to talk about in the national parks, uh, my favorite, is you can have a spa day in the national parks at Hot Springs National Park in Arkansas. That is correct. And who doesn't love a spa day? Now, there are two bathhouses that offer different spa services. The Quapa Bathhouse has modern day spa services with amenities like thermal pools, private baths, and a steam cave. Yeah. Just... <laughs> Should I sign you up right now, Matt? No, I'll be in the car. <laughs> and the other one is the Buckstaff Bathhouse, which has been in continuous operation since 1912 hopefully they've updated some of their equipment mm. <laughs> but mm -hmm. they provide a traditional hydrotherapy program that's been developed by local physicians for the relief of arthritis conditions stress <laughs> there we go and just plain relaxation they also have massages, facials, manicures, that kind of thing. So I don't know. A spa day does actually sound pretty good. No, no. The stress release in Hot Springs National Park is going to the nearby brewery. It <laughs> is the only national park that has a brewery inside the Superior Bathhouse Brewery. That's where I'm going to be to <laughs> relieve stress. Perfect. I'll have the spa day. You go to the brewery. It's a win-win. Yeah. Yeah. Why, why don't we have 
go to a brewery on our list of things here. Karen, didn't make the outline. Well, it's on there now, Matt. All right. All right. So that is Hot Springs, Arkansas. So obviously there are other really fun, unique experiences in the national parks. As always, we'd um, we'd suggest that before you travel to the parks, you look at their website under things to do and find out, you know, what might interest you specifically in these parks. All right. That's all the time we have today. Thanks so much for joining us. And that's all from us for 2023. We'll be back next year with new episodes, uh, just as soon as we think about what those might be. (laughs) But now we need to go and buy some ham, the kind of ham that comes in the gold gold foil with sugar on the outside. (laughs) Got to get that for our holiday dinner. Yeah, it's like a big present, isn't it? Wrapped it in is. like a shiny foil. I think you like it. It's like a big ham present. It is like a ham present. You need to eat those hams quick, though. They, they, they turn south on you after a few days. So, All right. We're going to get right on that. Okay, so wishing all of you a very happy holiday season and safe travels to wherever you are heading. Mm-hmm.